Today's video was recorded on May 16th, 2023, and today's lesson is the second in our series that we're calling Bible 101. So this Bible 101 series is going to be covering some of the foundational concepts that we find in our Bible, and it's really here to help you solidify or strengthen the foundations of your faith. So the first two topics we're covering really are the absolute foundation of the Bible. Those are redemption and covenant. So God has a plan. It's called the plan of redemption. And this is where he's going to or he's in the process of redeeming humanity and the cosmos from the chaos that we find ourselves in. That's redemption. And second, God's plan of redemption is carried out through a series of covenants. And the Bible is a covenant document, even though we say testament. We covered that last week in our week one, so you can go back and check that out if you haven't seen that. But this week, we're going to be looking at the Noahic covenant. God's covenant with humanity through Noah, who acts as the covenant mediator. And then specifically, we'll be exploring the sign of the covenant that God places in the sky. We would say a rainbow. But you'll see it goes much deeper than just rainbow. And it's really helpful to understand the ancient symbolism that's being presented here. It'll really deepen the Noah story for you. And I think you'll really enjoy that. Every time I teach this lesson, classes really enjoy the idea of what's going on with the rainbow. I think you will too. Now, just a couple logistical items. I've put together a couple documents on covenants. There's so many details to covenant that don't always get into the video. I wanted to make sure you had something that was a little bit more detailed and in writing, and then that way you can reflect on it. So these will be available for download at our website, bigtreeteaching.com, and they're in a PDF format. And also I'll place a link in the description section below this video, and that'll take you directly to them. So these documents will provide an outline of covenant, and then they'll help you firm up your understanding of both covenants and then the rituals of sacrifice that are used to ratify covenants. Because it's here in these ratification of the covenant that we can understand Jesus's words at the Last Supper, as well as the events of his death. So those will be very helpful for you to solidify what we're teaching in these videos. Now, of course, with a series like this, there are so many details to keep track of. And so we've provided class handouts. Those will help you keep the information organized. You'll be able to write down your own reflections on the topic. So make sure you download those handouts as well at our website. And again, the link will be below in the description section. So we hope you enjoy the second of our lessons in the Bible 101 series on the Noahic Covenant and the sign of the bow that God places in the sky. Okay, so the whole series is trying to go back to the foundational concepts of the Bible, which is, we're starting out, redemption and covenant. Now, over the summer, I'm going to put together more Bible 101, things like what's the good news, the background to the good news, to the word gospel, because uh, it does get a little bit confusing. So I'll continue this on into the summer. But redemption and covenant. And we talked last week about the plan of redemption is what God is doing. He's bringing us the whole cosmos back into his house, metaphorically, which is where you hear Jesus 
in my father's house there are many rooms. He's pulling that right from the cultural metaphor of redemption. So redemption is a big one. Now, how does God redeem the world? Well, he's going to establish a set of covenants. After the fall, and we'll go through them uh, very quickly tonight, but it'll give you a good idea. After the fall, he's going to begin to covenant with the people, and that's going to bring them back into the, towards the fullness of redemption. All right, so the painting in the background is Noah's, well, it's called the Sacrifice of Noah, Francesco Fernandi. And painted somewhere around 1720. But the sacrifice of Noah. That'll be our background picture as we talk about Noah and the covenant made with him. So redemption and covenant. This is our second one in the series. And tonight we're going to be looking at what's called the Noahic covenant. The first explicit covenant that we see in the Bible. Now, to make sure that we're reinforcing our idea of covenant. I'm going to do a quick review, and this is number one on your sheet, of the idea of covenant. And the recognition, and I think this is so important, is we recognize that covenant is relational, and so everything involved in the covenant making is relational. How does God get back into that's what redemption is, but then the covenant is relational. And just like a marriage covenant, it's defining a relationship. That's what a covenant does. Okay, so number one on your handout. I tried to break this down a little bit just to think about the pieces parts as we walk along. So we, we notice uh, it's an agreement. Now, agreement is free will. Right? God gave humanity free will, but he wants the free will. He wants you to choose him. So it's an agreement. God's not despotic. Now, maybe he makes us an offer we can't refuse, but at the core of it, he wants humanity to say yes to him and enter that relationship voluntarily. So there's two parties. And generally speaking, the ancient Near East covenants are between a king and a people group. So that's what we're going to see tonight is the metaphor. God as the king, he's in the position of power, and we're going to come into covenant with him. But the idea is it's enacted between two parties, and one or both will make promises under oath. Now, it's important because we're going to see tonight God's going to make a promise. So in every covenant, God has a responsibility. Now, we're not worried about him, you know, failing to live up to his side of the covenant. We're the ones with the problem of not being able to keep our side of the covenant going, but he forgives us. He's a God who, who has mercy and forgiveness and grace and wants to bring us back in at the moment that we say, you know, God, I strayed and I confess my sins. I repent. I want to come back in to relationship. God says, great. I'm happy that you're back. So two parties both making promises, and really important, as we're going to see in a couple, the next week or two, the oath. It's with an oath. That's where we take out our mortgage and sign on the dotted line. That's our oath to say, I promise to repay this. In the ancient world, 
That oath was done with a sacrifice and very often, as we'll see, something called a blood path. You create a path of blood and both parties walk through it. And the imagery or the symbolism says, if I violate this covenant, you can do this to me till death do us part. If I break the covenant, it's death. So there's an oath, which means you can't violate them. And the, in the ancient world, to violate a covenant was horrific. Now, okay, so then we have uh, obligations next. to So in a, an agreement enacted between two parties, which one or both make promises under oath to perform or refrain. So just like we see in uh, the Mosaic Covenant, do not lie, do not steal, love your neighbor as yourself. These are the obligations that we're supposed to do, either perform or refrain from certain actions. And it's just like a marriage, right? Um, got to take out the trash. That's part of the obligation of being married is you got to clean up after yourself and take out the trash or make the bed or something like that. And the thing you refrain from is all the stuff you did when you were single, right? You went and hung out with, your, with the guys at the bar. And when you enter into that covenant relationship, now there's an obligation to cultivate the relationship, right? How do you cultivate a marriage? Well, I don't know. What's your spouse's love language? Something like that. You know, find out what your spouse's love language is and then do things that fill that bucket, right? That's the whole genesis of the book. And if we think about it, what's God's love language? Right? What does God love more than anything? Well, when we worship him, when we obey, when we love our neighbor, right? When we treat one another nice, God feels all warm inside. So, okay. So we have lots of things that actions that we that we are obligated to do. And that doesn't end as Christians. In fact, it gets even it goes higher. Jesus makes it harder. Okay. Now, it's all stipulated in advance, and that's the last little bit. God does not want to leave us guessing, and he's not a capricious God. You know, he doesn't have us walking on eggshells every day, wondering if we've sacrificed enough, if we've done the proper actions. He tells us his will in advance. Very important, because we can accept it or not. I know we don't feel like when we come to Jesus that we're entering a covenant and, and accepting an agreement, but essentially that's what covenant is. And we have to understand that when we enter that relationship, there are obligations. It's part of Christian living. But they're not unknown. We don't have to be guessing what God wants us to do. Okay, so that's covenant. Now, within that covenant, what's, and I, this was mentioned, no, I'm sorry, I forgot to mention this last week. Very important to notice, in the ancient world, Israel has a very unique relationship with God. So I have this on your handout, but I want to show you one uh, a verse from Deuteronomy. And it helps you understand why some of the nations might be upset all the time with Israel, okay, or even the early Christians. So Israel has a very unique relationship in that God wants to covenant with them. There's no other nation where the God wants to covenant with them, and the God is taking responsibility for the relationship and expects the people are. They don't have that. So, in the Old Testament, I didn't put this scripture reference down, but you might want to turn to it. You could jot it down and then turn to it. It's Deuteronomy 32, verse 8. 
Deuteronomy 32 is an important chapter in the life of Israel. So if you ever want to become familiar with a chapter, Deuteronomy 32 is a good one. You'll find lots of references to that. Leviticus 19 is always a good one. But Deuteronomy 32.8, essentially the Old Testament tells us that every nation has a national God. So there's all these gods, and Israel's God just so happens to be what they call the Most High God. And even the other nations call the God of Israel the Most High God. We see that in the book of Acts. So the God of Israel, yud heh vav heh God, what we would say Yahweh, that's the Most High God. And so if we turn to Deuteronomy 32, verse 8, and I had to use the uh, English Standard Version. I use the ESV because we have a problem with copies of the Old Testament. A later copy of, I'll show you where it is, it's at the end, but the ESV picks up the one that I think is the most correct. So it says, notice how it starts out, verse 8, when the Most High, that's the Most High God, right? They're talking about God, Yahweh, what we call God. But when the Most High God gave to the nations their inheritance, now the inheritance is always land. So he's giving all the other nations places to live, land. And the Old Testament doesn't really say that there's only one God or only one heavenly being that has power. The Old Testament says there's a heavenly council and Most High of the gods in implies that there's lesser gods. There are spiritual forces that have power. And God divides them among, among the nations. So he divided mankind. He fixed the borders of the... Oh, when he divided mankind, he fixed the borders of the people. And according to the numbers of the sons of God. Now, yours might say sons of Israel. Now, I think there's an argument to be made that the earlier version, because this is what the Dead Sea Scrolls and the Septuagint say, are sons of God. Now, sons of God is like a spiritual being. Now, why am I bringing all of this up? Well, because there are other spiritual beings assigned to, the, to your neighboring nations, according to this scripture verse, and they're gods in the sense that they have spiritual power. And what's unique about Israel is not that we say there's only one God, it's that their allegiance is to one God. And so when Israel makes a covenant with the Most High God, the Yahweh God, are you allowed to covenant with other gods? No way. You shall have no other gods before me. And so what's happening is, if you're in a covenant with God, that we're, the Most High God, you can't go over to your neighbor, like Moab or Edom or whatever, and worship their God. But all the other people did that. They didn't care. You know, the other gods weren't jealous. Wherever they went, if you went into a neighboring country, you'd make an offering to that God too. Who cares? My God doesn't. And this creates a huge problem. So we go back to this. Yahweh, the most high God, and then Israel is, has the only God that wants to covenant with them, and that's different. And then it upsets your neighbors, because 
hey, wait a minute, you didn't make an offering to my God. And what if now my God pours out punishment on you, but I become a, a bystander? Why aren't you worshiping that God? I'm not allowed to. My allegiance is to one God, the Most High God. And this is a really important thing because it upsets everybody when you say that you can't worship their God. Okay, so the whole point of this is that Israel has a unique relationship, no other God covenants, and it creates a huge problem for them. One example, if you may want to jot this down, is read the first chapter of Jonah. I didn't put it on your sheet, but if you read the first chapter of Jonah, the beginning of Jonah, he's about to get on a boat. And the sailors say to him, things aren't going well. The sailors say, where are you from? Jonah says, I'm a Hebrew. I worship the Lord, the God of heaven. And they start to freak out. You did what? You're, you, you're violating the Most High God, the Lord of, of heaven? And the sailors start making offerings to God. Now, that doesn't mean that they're converting. It just means that, like other pagans, they'll make offerings to any God that they think will get them out of the situation that they're in. Okay, my point is this. The covenant demands loyalty, and because God covenants with Israel, they have to be loyal to God alone. I just want to show you that it does connect, and other nations don't have that, and so it really upsets the apple cart when you won't go along with your neighbor. Since, you know, like I said, what if the God gets upset with you, and I become a, you know, my property gets damaged too? Israel is unique. That will upset the world. All right, so now, number two, let's go through real quick. Um, the plan, it's a plan of redemption, and God then is going to lay out covenants with Israel. And I did this last week, just in order. They go Adam, uh, Noah, we'll, we'll talk about Adam and Noah tonight, Abraham, Moses, uh, David, and then Jesus. Okay? So those are your covenant mediators of how God is redeeming the world. Now, I want to use, um, we'll start with Adam and Eve. This is number three on your handout. We'll start with Adam and Eve, and I'm going to go through each one and show you how they flow out, and then we'll come back to Noah and look at it, Noah in more, uh, more intently. So the Bible begins, right, with Adam and Eve. This is God's original intent. God wants to dwell with his people in his place. That's Eden. That's Adam and Eve. Now, the Bible never says explicitly there's a covenant, but scholars find the elements of a covenant in the story. So, for instance, we call it the Adamic covenant. And what you see in Genesis, and we're not going to read it, but when you have a chance, go back and read it. God in Genesis 3 is, like he, 2 and 3, he's a metaphorical king. So just like an ancient Near East king covenants with a people group, God is depicted as that ancient Near East king. He walks in his paradise, his walled garden. And what he's done is he's taken the people that he created and he gave them a land grant. He said, here, Adam and Eve, I'm going to let you live on this land. I'm going to give you a land grant. That's part of covenanting. Uh, and what you have to do is take care of it. So Adam becomes the gardener in a way. The king provides the land grant, and you can live there as long as you do what? Obey the rules. 
So there's going to be some stipulations and obligations. So what God tells them is, be fruitful and multiply. That's a commandment. Fill the earth. And oh, by the way, this covenant of Adam and Eve would be for all humanity. There's no limitation going on here. So he says, be fruitful and multiply. And be, we'll see that again in a minute in the Noah covenant. He says, uh, but there's one thing you're not allowed to do. Don't eat from the tree over there, that tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Don't eat from that, because if you do, now you've violated our covenant relationship. So if you don't violate the covenant, you get blessings. And all covenants have a section for blessings, and they have a section for curses. Your blessing is you get to live with God. Your curse, you're kicked out. Okay. Now, we know what happens. The covenant's broken. Uh, the relationship is broken. And, of course, God then is going to move them out of Eden. So if we go back to our picture here, this covenant, this first covenant, uh, is for all humanity. That's the Adam and Eve one. But it's broken, so the covenant goes by the wayside. So then we get Noah. And the Noahic covenant is also going to be for all humanity. What we're going to see is a type of recreation event. Okay? So Noah, Noah the Noahic covenant, applies to all humanity because it's, we're starting over. Then God says, okay, Abraham now. And what I'm going to do is God's starting to build towards Jesus. The Abraham covenant says, all right, all the covenant blessings are going to come through one people. That's the Hebrew people. So you get now Abraham. He's representing one people group. That's the Hebrew people. Then the blessings of Abraham start to manifest through a nation, and that's the Mosaic covenant. So you go from one people group to one nation. And now this nation is supposed to show the world what it's like to covenant with this Most High God. Put God on display so the, people, so the world can see it. And then from that one nation, there's a unique sub-covenant with David. And this is the idea of a kingship. The king above the people, but below God, that's going to be the intermediary between God and the people. And of course, that's going to start to foreshadow the coming king that will one day arrive. So all humanity, you have all humanity that goes down to one people, that's Abraham, to one nation, that's Moses, to, one, to a kingship, that's David. And then from that one people, from that one nation, inside of a singular tribe comes a king, and that's Jesus. And now when Jesus then ascends to be the king, the heavenly king, there's an eternal kingship, and the covenant reverts back to all humanity. For God so loved the world, the whole world. Who can enter the covenant? Anybody can enter the covenant, as long as they recognize that Jesus is Lord, right? Every knee shall bow and tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. So you've moved all the way through from all humanity back to all humanity that this covenant is going to apply for. So this is how God's redeeming the world.
Okay, that's just a, an overview of the covenants, but you can see that there's actually a progression to what God is, is doing. Okay, number four, and this is real quick on the Noah story, because it's important to at least understand what's happening with this Noah story. The Noah story uh, is a de-creation event. God is going to start over. The people that descended out of Adam and Eve, they become violent. So we're still connected to Adam and Eve, but all humanity is connected to Adam and Eve through Noah. And what's cool is the text will tell us it inside the symbolism, you recognize there's decreation happening. So uh, real quick, this, this painting here that I found, this is by James Tissot. It's called The Creation. And this was painted around the turn of the ni- uh, 1900, 1896 to, to 1901. But the book of Genesis begins with the chaotic waters. And the chaotic waters were reigning over the earth, and then God spoke. And the chaotic waters are divided. And the Bible tells us that some water went up and some water went down below the earth. So there were waters above the earth and waters below the earth. And when the chaos is divided, now order can break out. Order comes into existence. You have land and plants and animals and, of course, human beings. And then when human beings sin, well, it all starts to flow back towards that chaos again. And what's interesting about the Noah story is we tend to think that it rained for 40 days, and it did. The waters came down, the waters from above came down, but the Bible tells us that the springs of the deep burst forth from below. And so what you see is what God did in Genesis, dividing the waters, he's now turning them back on humanity. He lets loose the water from above, he lets loose the water from below, and so you get the watery chaos is reigning again. And so it's a really powerful ancient Near East image of what God is doing. But this time, and this is really uh, an important point, he provides an ark. The ark is the thing that takes you through the watery chaos. And if we want to pull a little bit of little teaching out of this lesson, you can say, what's your ark? What is it in life that you cultivate? that's going to bring you through the difficult times of life. Because guess what? There's always a flood coming somewhere. You know, whether it's, I mean, there's always a flood coming. We just know it in life. And so we have to cultivate, build an ark that's going to survive the chaos. The rabbis say the Bible is the ark. That's why you study the Bible. Because it's the thing that gets you through the watery chaos of life. The early church fathers said, Jesus is the ark. And in him, you ride through the chaotic waters uh, that life will deliver you. So there's great teaching in this whole thing. But anyways, it's a, uh, it's a decreation event, and I just wanted to show you that. Okay, uh, number five. So now let's look at this Noahic covenant. And we have to then, if we think about it, we're going to say, ah, it's a recreation. It's God flooded the earth again, and now he's going to start over. 
So if you have your Bible, turn to Genesis 9. And this is where the covenant story is. And then when you get to Genesis 9, read the first verse. So Genesis 9, verse 1, and see if it sounds familiar. Something that God may have said to, say, Adam and Eve. So right off the bat, God says, look, well, God, it says, God blessed Noah and his sons, and he said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. So he's got the same command. And that, when you hear that commandment, it takes you right back to Genesis and you say, aha, everything's starting over again. Just like in, I think it's uh, Genesis 1 verse 28, God tells Adam and Eve, be fruitful and multiply. Here it is again now with the Noah story. So be fruitful and multiply. That's the first part. You're going to be fruitful and multiply. You're going to repopulate the earth. But now there's some interesting things that happen here. One of them is that the stipulations that God is going to give Adam and, or I'm sorry, Noah and his sons and his family, the stipulations have to do with honoring life itself. And so God just went through this period of murderous violence from the people that he created. The very first act that is recorded happening outside the Garden of Eden is murder, Cain and Abel. And I mean, one brother murdering another brother, right? Is there, is there greater chaos than this? And so what God's going to do is he's going to give stipulations and obligations that are intended to honor life. Because apparently they didn't get it alone before the people. And so what you get is a, a commandment then that says, don't eat meat with the lifeblood in it. Because that blood represents the life. And we have to honor life. Because there was so much death. And then what we see again is that another thing God commands is he demands accounting for murder. If you take a human life, then there's going to be an accounting for that. And so if you look, look at Genesis 9, verse 5 and 6, I mean, if you're going to have, if you have any discussion of the death penalty, you have to start here. You can't go right to Exodus or Deuteronomy. You got to come here because God is recognizing that before you can love your neighbor as yourself, you got to stop murdering. How about that, right? That's how do you love your neighbor as yourself? Well, A, don't murder them. There's a good start. So God says, look, there's going to be an accounting for if you take a human life. In fact, he even says, if an animal takes a human life, there's an accounting. Okay, from every human being, I will require it. That's the accounting for the life of his fellow human being. Okay, then verse 6. Whoever takes a human life, by a human life, his life will be taken. And this is the first point where he's saying, look, murder is such a um, terrible thing that whatever, hap whatever you do will then happen to you. It's actually, it's, it's what the Bible, or yeah, the Bible calls measure for measure, or I just put M for M, measure for measure. 
what you do to another person will be done. It will turn back onto your own head. So if you murder, then your life ought to be taken. It's cosmic justice. Even Jesus says, um, it sounds like karma, but it's not. Jesus even says, how you measure it out will be measured back to you. So measure for measure, you'll find it in every book of the Bible. Now, why is it so important that we don't murder a human being? For in the image of God, God made humankind. You murder a human being, you just killed, you just destroyed the image of God. So I just want to point out, when this new covenant is coming out, it's all about honoring life, okay? Now, God has going to make a promise here. So he says, look, you can't murder, you don't eat uh, meat with blood in it, and I'll make you a promise. I'm never going to flood the, the earth again. That's my promise. I won't destroy that world again through the flood. Okay, so God has an obligation that he placed on himself. And then he says, look, and I'm even going to put a sign of the covenant, just like the, when we will see with Abraham. Abraham makes a covenant. There's a sign. It's called circumcision. God says, I got a sign of the covenant that will remind me not to destroy the earth again. So what's the sign? And that brings us to number six. And this is, what's the sign of the covenant? Now, I know you guys know this from reading your Bible, but let's look a little deeper into this sign. Okay, so if you look at verse 13. Now, depends on the Bible version that you have. Uh, this one is the New Heart English Bible. But the sign, it's, verse 13 says, I will set my rainbow. Now that's what mine says. Yours might say bow. But I set my rainbow. Now that's interpretation. I'll show you in a minute. I set my rainbow in the cloud because, well, that's where rainbows are. It will be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. Okay? Now, here's the problem, and this is what we're going to finish up with. I set my rainbow, not what it says. And you have to get rid of that word rain. It says, I set my bow. What's the significance of that? Well, so first of all, I wanna, I'll show you the word, but there's a significant aspect to setting a bow in the sky. Okay? So in Hebrew, uh, the word there, kashet, and it literally means a warrior's bow. It's 72 times in the Old Testament. It means warrior's bow. It also has the implication, and, and as we start looking at some of these pictures from the ancient Near East reliefs, you'll see it has an implication of war, has an implication of victory, power, might. The kings and the gods want to carry a bow to show you how strong and powerful they are. And it's a warrior's bow. And what we'll see, and I'll show you a picture here in a second, that the gods were often depicted in the ancient world carrying a bow. Okay, like, let me show you this one. So this one was found in Nineveh, which is in... Uh, that was the capital city of the Assyrian Empire in Nineveh, modern-day northern Iraq. But this is where Jonah was sent, by the way. That's sent to, to in, uh, Nineveh. 
And this is the Assyrian god Ashur. And he's inside of the sun disk. So he's almost like a sun god, but he's the god of the sky. And he's got his arrow and he's going to do battle by slinging arrows out. But that's just one example of a uh, Assyrian god. Let me show you an Egyptian one real quick. Uh, now, this is a complex picture. This is a, an, a, a replica of, of what's inside of a, a temple in Egypt. And it's Ramses II, his victory at a battle called Kadesh. And Ramses is, let me zoom it in a little bit. He's right here. You notice Ramses, well, he may, may have been a propaganda, right? He made himself much bigger. He's standing in the chariot, glorious. And notice his bow because he's conquering the people. So he depicts himself with a bow, and the business end of the bow is pointing at the people to say, war, victory, power, might. Okay? Here's another one. Let me do another one. Just notice the business end of the bow. This is Ashur Banipal. He's from the Assyrian. The Assyrians loved war. They were really good at war somewhere around 669 BC, but just notice the business end of the war. He's a conquering king. Here are some Assyrian soldiers. Again, just notice the business end of the bow pointing at the people. Now, then we get this. This comes from another Assyrian king. It's called the Black Obelisk of Shalmaneser. And if you want to go look that up, you can. There's actually, it's very uh, important piece of archaeology because in the middle of the screen, there's a guy bowing down. He's bowing down to the king. If you can see the guy bowing down, that's a king of northern Israel. It's a king of Israel, Jehu. So this is one of the first outside of Israel historical artifacts that shows an Israelite. So it's an important obelisk. But I want to show you one thing that's interesting on this obelisk. It has to do with the king. It's this picture right here. So here's the king. Okay? He's standing in the middle. He's greeting some people. And when you look closer at his bow, it's facing him. Okay? So notice the business end of the bow is facing this direction, not the other people group. And that's a sign of peace. You want to show peace, you turn your weapon around. And now the bow is pointing back the other way, showing I'm not going to use this weapon against you. Okay? Now, all of that, number seven, God puts a bow. It's a warrior's bow in the, sky, in the clouds. What direction is the bow facing? Okay, so if we just do a crude depiction, we have God up as in the, in the heavens, humanity is down below, and he places his bow in the sky. And which way is the bow, the business end of the bow facing? The king. It means it's a covenant of peace. I'm not going to destroy the earth again like this. Right? He used that weapon. Rain was his weapon. And now he says, no, now the symbol means I turned my bow around. See, if God were going to be a destroying God again, he'd put the bow like this. 
and all of the people would be full of anxiety because they'd be at any moment this God's going to unleash the rain again and kill us all. Right? If you know that flood history, you're anxious as anything. But God gives us a concrete sign. He says, no, no, no. Look at my bow in the sky. I turn it towards me. And now it's a covenant of peace. And it's one of the most profound things about when we, when we make it rainbow, the English the normal modern reader just says, oh, I know what a rainbow is, and they keep going. But if you leave it bow, there's a possibility you'll ask, hey, what does that mean bow? Why is it bow? Shouldn't it be rainbow? No, it should be bow. And now you can go into this whole idea of the warrior's bow. There's even, I put this quote on your sheet. It's from a uh, 12th century, 13th, 12th to 13th century. He's a rabbi, Jewish rabbi. He has a commentary on the book of Genesis. His name is Nachmanides. Uh, you'll remember that one. For short, they call him the Ramban. And absolutely brilliant writings. I mean, it'll blow you away. This guy, you know, he has a comment on Genesis 1. This is, this is completely off topic, but I just want to show you. This is, these are brilliant people. Genesis 1, God said, the words says, and God spoke 10 times in Genesis 1. And Nachmanides says, because there's, God spoke 10 times, it means there's 10 dimensions in our, in, the, in our reality. Four of them we know, but there's 10 dimensions. And you think, well, that's just crazy, right? Except modern physicists, quantum particle physicists, when they mathematically calculate out how many dimensions they have, there has to be, there's at least 10. When they start doing the math for all of the, the quantum particles, and it's crazy. And you think, this guy in the 11th century is reading Genesis 1. He figured that out. And now it's being confirmed with science. So, okay, what does the Ramban say? He says this, It is indeed the way of the warriors to invert their instruments of war, which they hold in their hands when calling for peace from their opponents. And then he's talking about the bow there. The bow has no rope on which to put an arrow. So it's a, it's a bow turned in peace. Okay. For me, it just, it's one of the cooler things when you understand the depth of this text in front of us, if we have eyes to see, if we, if we have the ability to go underneath that. And it does take a little bit of work. Okay. And what does this all mean? And I think this is one of the most important things. God isn't angry. This is what God is telling his people. I'm not angry with you. Because the one thing that invokes anxiety from human beings are storms. All you folks in California that just lived through a whole winter of huge storms, it can be terrifying because they happen so quickly and people feel like they're losing control and we have all this technology. Can't we control the weather? Right? And then many people, the moment there's a storm that's out of control, they say, ah, oh, the gods are angry. God says, look, I'm not angry. If you sin, here are the things you need to do. I'm, I'm showing you my will. So the ancient people were full of anxiety, particularly about floods and rain. This is a concrete sign to, to say, you don't have to be anxious, because that anxiety will cause you to do crazy things. And so you can even hear, listen to people when they talk about the weather. They use religious language, right? Mother Earth is getting angry. 
We must make sacrifices so that she will stop throwing bad weather at us. It's right out of the Noah story. And, you know, people get crazy because, hey, uh, there was bad weather. Last year, we sacrificed two goats. Hmm, let's do four. Then if the weather doesn't change, well, well, let's do eight goats. Then 16. Then, you know, you, you, the next thing you know, you're, you're sacrificing a human being to try to appease a god who's not angry. The weather just happens to be a weather cycle. So, anyways, it does get crazy. But I think the whole point is, God says, look, I'm not going to destroy the earth again. Okay, let's do a quick review. The Noahic Covenant is recreation. So Adam and Eve would have been for all humanity. Noahic Covenant for all humanity. That's why Acts 15, when they say, what do we do with these Gentiles that are coming in the church? They go to the Noahic Covenant. Tell them not to eat meat with blood in it. That's one of the things that they pull in Acts 15. It's for all humanity. The stipulations are all about honoring life because that epic that just happened, the epoch, I should say, the epoch that just happened, before Noah was murderous violence. And then we see that God used rain to destroy the, the, the earth, but when he makes the covenant of peace, he sets his bow in the sky, but he sets the bow pointing him, pointing up towards him. So yes, he used that as a weapon, but now he's making a covenant of peace. And so when it rains the next time, and we look up and we see that rainbow, we can say, God's not angry. It just so happens to be a torrential downpour. You get, you get the point on that. All right, that's Redemption and Covenant Part 2. It should be the Noahic Covenant there, but... I love that picture of the bow. It brings a, a depth to the text that Rainbow just doesn't cut it. So 